Good morning. Welcome. We are uh, glad you're here. It is a good place and time to be together. And uh, if you're new to us this morning, we are glad you've come to uh, visit us, but we hope you come back. And if you're returning guests, we are certainly glad you've chosen to come back and, and get closer to us. And uh, we want to get closer to you as we all get closer to the heart of the Lord. We're all in different places in this journey, uh, but our goal is to get near the heart of God and ever near so that we can be like His Son, Jesus Christ. Take a moment and fill out a connection card, if you would. Put it in the basket. When it's passed later on, we're here. We've already experienced singing and worshiping the Lord in that music. Uh, we're about to hear the preaching of the Word. Luke Proctor, our minister in residence, will be bringing the message this morning. And then we're going to do some more singing. We're going to remember Christ by holding this these two little emblems, bread and cup, uh, a little bit of juice that reminds us of this tremendous love that God shared with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to share an offering together. Uh, that's part of our worship. If you're new to us, we don't expect you to give, but we're not going to turn any of it away either. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm learning more and more the value of an app. Uh, if, if you have, how many don't have PCC app yet? You need to get that. I mean, you can just look up people, addresses, phone numbers, haunt them, whatever you want to do, and you can give by your app. I've learned to do that, and I, I love doing that. And, and, and uh, people think, well, you can't worship God on your app. No, but, you know, I pray about the church and about the people we support all the time. So it's a convenient way, wherever I am, if I've forgotten my check or something, I've always got a way to give, and I want to make sure I don't miss the grace of giving as well as everything else. So a lot of good things to happen in just a brief hour together all for the glory of God, and, and what happens is the byproduct is we are made better when we put God first and praise Him. In the New Testament, the Hebrew writer says, do not keep from meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So already in the first century, people were messing up and just staying faithful to the worship in the community of faith. And he says, when you come together, spur each other on to love and good works. So I hope that happens to you today just by being here that you're spurred on in your life, all of us together, to greater love and good works for the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of the Lord that's our strength. We are thankful that you, you knew our need to be together. You made us that way. You created us with the need to be with one another and worshiping the Lord. And I pray every one of us is made better for having been here today, that we take something out of here with us that will, that will become a greater reality, truth lived out in us. So thank you for your presence. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. <clears throat> Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. My name is Luke Proctor. I'm the new guy here on staff at PCC. My wife Rebecca and I recently moved here from Joplin, Missouri, where it is hotter than a Dutch oven and so humid you can practically drink the air. And so after our first week here in Indiana, where the weather is so beautiful, we've decided that Indiana has to be the best kept secret in the country. <laughs> you Hoosiers have just been holding out on the rest of us. Uh, but we're glad to be here, excited to join the family at PCC. We've been going through this series the last few weeks together called When All is Said and Done, exploring the gospel truths given to us by God and the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And last week, Steve preached from Romans chapter 8 about groaning in the spirit, how we, how we pray in the midst of the struggles of life, because this is a painful life. We live in a groaning world, a broken world. You can flip on the news, you can read the newspaper, whatever, you scroll your Twitter, you'll see it. You can't do it without seeing calamities and wars and terrorism, and we, we hear 
hear about our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world being persecuted and displaced and even killed for their faith. There's not a single person in here who hasn't been touched in some way by disease. Cancer, AIDS, Alzheimer's, MS, Downs, you name it. We live in a groaning world where the common denominator that binds humanity together is death. It's waiting for each and every one of us. My wife, Rebecca, and I are going to have a baby boy in November. He's going to pop out, and we just can't wait. We are so excited to have a little baby. And, you know, I know people who've said that, honestly, they just don't think it would be right to bring a baby into all of this. And they have a point. I mean, this is a world of pain. This little boy is going to have his heart broken and his back stabbed. But the beautiful thing is that even in the midst of a painful life, a groaning world, we have the promises of God and Scripture to rest on. Amen? Amen. I think we get one of the best promises of all today. So if you would, follow along with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So here's what I want to say to you today. Even in your groaning, God is working for your good. Even in your groaning, God is working for your good. That's a beautiful promise. So let's look at three aspects of that promise today. The first thing is this. Our God is trustworthy. Our God is trustworthy. This letter to the Romans was written by a guy named Paul to this fledgling little group of believers in the ancient city of Rome. And this letter was written around the year 56, 57 AD, about 25 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. But before that, in the year 49 AD, the Roman emperor actually kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And that included all the Jewish Christians as well. So these Jewish Christians, you got to understand, in the church, they were the old hands. They were the seasoned veterans. They knew the ropes of the faith. And so now all of a sudden, the church in Rome is left in the hands of the Gentile believers. And the Gentiles are everybody who's not a Jew. That's us. And a lot of these Gentile believers are probably fresh out of pagan idol worship. So eventually, I mean, they get their feet wet and the church in Rome is doing okay. But five years after the Jews were kicked out in AD 54, still before this letter was written, the Jews, the new, or the new Roman emperor lets all the Jews back into the city. So now in the church, you've got these Jewish Christians coming back in, probably expecting the good old days. But then when they get there, it's the Gentiles who've been running things for the last several years. And so there was probably some tension. Uh, the Jews may be looking at the Gentiles as the new kids on the block. They're ungrateful. And the Gentiles may be looking at the Jews as yesterday's news. <laughs> And it wouldn't be hard to imagine from the Jews' perspective how they'd be thinking, wait, God promised this to us. He promised this to Abraham. So why are the Gentiles getting in on our stuff now? Did God flake out on his promise? Can God be trusted? And so part of the goal of this letter to the Romans is to show that God has been and always will be faithful to his promise. Our God is trustworthy. We see this here in verse 28, right at the beginning. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Elementary school cafeteria, all the lunch ladies flopping tater tots onto the trays and stuff, you know. And at the end of the line, there's this big old basket full of juicy red apples. And in front of the basket of apples, there's a sign. One of the cafeteria ladies has written, take only one apple. 
God is watching. (laughs) And then right next to this basket of apples, there's a tray of warm, fresh chocolate chip cookies. And in front of that tray, a little boy has ripped out a piece of notebook paper and scrawled in his handwriting, take as many as you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) And we laugh at this because we know that there is nowhere that God can't see. There's nowhere that God is not. We can trust our God because he's everywhere. We can trust our God because he sees everything. We can trust our God because he's strong enough to do whatever he wants. We can trust our God because he's wise enough to accomplish whatever goal he wants to. Our God is smart enough. Uh, There's an author named Ray Bradbury who wrote a short story entitled A Sound of Thunder. And it's the story of this group of rich businessmen who actually use a time machine to go back in time and take a safari to the days of dinosaurs and hunt a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And when this group of businessmen get back in time, there's this floating, hovering metal path through the jungle. And these men are under strict instructions not to step off that path. I mean, don't even touch the jungle. Don't even step on the dirt. If you do, your actions could have dramatic ramifications on the rest of time, potentially even altering the course of history. Let's say you step off that uh, path back in time and you accidentally kill one mouse. Well, that means you annihilate all the future families of that mouse, right? And the families and the families and the families and the families of those mice. So with one stomp of your foot, you kill not one, but a dozen, a thousand, a million, a billion potential mice. Well, what about the foxes who need those mice to survive? For want of ten mice, a fox dies. For want of ten foxes, a lion dies. What about the caveman who needs that lion? For want of a lion, a caveman dies. And that caveman is not just any expendable man. No, he's an entire future nation. From his loins would have sprung ten sons. From from their loins would have sprung a hundred sons. And thus onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man and you destroy a race, a history of life, an entire people group. With the death of that one caveman, billions of others yet unborn are throttled in the womb. With that one step of your foot, Rome might never rise on the seven hills. Uh, A step of your foot and and you crush the pyramids. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington might not cross the Delaware. There might not be a United States at all. Don't step off the path. Stay on the path. Well, I'll let you go read the story for yourself, but I'll give you a spoiler. Somebody steps off the path and it changes everything. You see, there are so many factors about how life could work. Millions, billions, trillions of potentialities about the course of history. And if it was up to us to manage our own destinies, we would screw it up every single time. Because we have a limited perspective, don't we? I read a study this week that says that men drive an average of 276 miles a year being lost. (laughs) I think that is a conservative estimate for me. Wives, no elbows, please. I'm the king of the U-turn in my household, okay? It's because I need a bird's eye view to figure out where I'm going. Because I just have a point of view. I'm looking at you guys. I can't see what's behind me right now. But God, he just has a view. He sees all of time, all of history, and he's weaving this thread throughout all of it. He's pulling this thread, weaving it all together to accomplish his purposes. And this is not just the pie in the sky kind of blind optimism that we have. No, Paul says in verse 28, we know this. This is not fate or karma or chance. You guys have seen that flopping plastic singing fish that's motion activated, right? The big mouth billy bass that sings when you walk by it. This is not singing fish theology, Don't worry, be happy. No. 
We don't just believe that things work together for good and that somehow mysteriously in the end everybody lives happily ever after. No, we believe in providence, sovereignty. This is God working together all things for the good of those who love him. The universe is not run by a coin flip. It's run by a person and that person is your father who loves you. Our God has an eternal purpose that will not be stopped. Our God is trustworthy. Now that is a beautiful promise. But it's a promise in this verse that's easily misunderstood. So let's look at three misunderstandings about Romans 8, 28 here. The first misunderstanding is this. This is not everything happens for a reason. Like if I'm driving down the road and my tire blows out, well, the Bible says all things work together for good. There must be a sale on tires. Well, maybe, but probably not. Um, We don't believe that God causes every little thing. Much of the evil and the hardship in the world is our own fault. We live in a fallen world where nature runs amok, where sinful people live in every single house, where Satan is out to steal and kill and destroy. Now, God does love to work in the little things. He loves to create little God moments and use the little things for his good and his glory. But let's not assume that every little thing that happens is God's will. This is also not bad things won't happen. Notice that Paul implies that all things will happen to those who love God. Not just good things, bad things too. So this verse does not mean, well, if you just love God enough, then your life will be easy. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is not everything happens for a reason. It's not bad things won't happen, and it's also not all things are good. Bad things are not good things. War is not a good thing. The death of a child is not a good thing. Cancer is not a good thing. Addiction is not a good thing. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, Jesus went to the tomb and he wept. Because death is not how the world was supposed to work. Jesus hates death. He hates suffering. He hates sin. Our sin is always bad. And yet our God is so good that he can weave even the bad things for our ultimate good. And our eternal good and his eternal purpose. God is working in every life event, good or bad, to accomplish his goal. He's got the whole world in his hands. I don't know if you know the story of Joseph from Genesis, but Joseph's brothers, they throw him in a pit and they sell him off to slavery. But at the end of the story, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's sovereignty is dependable. His character is unbending. His perspective is perfect. His wisdom is limitless. His will is good. His power is unstoppable. His purpose will succeed. And his goal is your good, so you can trust him. He even turned the greatest evil ever done in the crucifixion of the Son of God into the greatest good ever done in the resurrection. Our God is trustworthy. The ultimate result of even the hard things is our good. So our God is trustworthy, and he's working for our good. So what is our good? Well, we like to decide what's good for us, don't we? Well, but that's not how this promise works. You see, this doesn't necessarily mean, well, I'm sorry you lost your job, but don't worry, a higher-paying job is on the way. And this doesn't even mean, uh, don't be upset about your significant other breaking up with you because I'm sure that means there's a much better one who's coming your way shortly. No, that's our definition of good. And God's not promising to give us all good things according to our definition of good. Perfect health or a well-paying job that we like or a nice house or a padded retirement account. God's goal for us is not primarily material. God's goal for us is primarily eternal and spiritual. He's not saying that our good times to hard times ratio is going to be higher than that of unbelievers. God's definition of good is much higher and greater than ours. So let's see what God says is good. Verse 29. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So our good is Christ-likeness. Our good is Christ-likeness. Now, God does love to bless his children, and he will provide for you. That's a promise. But material things are not God's ultimate goal. He may want to break you free from that good job to shake you out of your materialism. He may want to set you free from that relationship because it's an idol for you, and he's got a ministry for you that you can only accomplish as a single person. God's ultimate purpose for you is to conform you, literally the Greek says, to morph you into Christ's image. You will be changed to be like Christ, your older brother. So what's all this about Christ being the firstborn and us being his little brothers and sisters who are supposed to be like him? Well, Christ as the firstborn means that Jesus is the preeminent one of all creation, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he's the top dog. I always knew firstborns were the best. Can I get an amen, firstborns? <laughs> all right, all right. Jesus holds the highest position of honor in the family of God. He was the first one to be raised from the dead and enter into glory, and he paved the way for us to follow. Way back here in the beginning, God made the world. He made humans in his image to look like him. But Adam and Eve pretty quickly screwed that up, and so has every person since then. So, we just read, though, that Jesus is the image of God. So, Jesus came down in our likeness, took on flesh, so that we might be made back into his likeness, the image of God restored in us. You guys know that thing about how when people are married for a long time, they start to look like each other? You should pray for my wife about that, by the way. <laughs> but that's kind of what God wants for us. The longer we're with Jesus, the more we're supposed to look like Jesus. We've already discovered in Romans that we've been adopted into the family of God, but we're not only adopted. We're supposed to start bearing the family resemblance, too. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing will touch you that cannot be used by your loving and powerful father to make you like Jesus if you let him. He can use that financial struggle to teach you to trust him. He can use that troublesome child in your life to teach you to obey your father. He can use that rocky season in your marriage to teach you to pray. God's goal is to make us, through the things of life, as noble, as loving, as true, as wise, as kind, as strong, as good, as joyful as Jesus is. That is our ultimate good. So our God is trustworthy. Our good is Christ-likeness. And the third thing is this, our glory. Our glory is secure. Our glory is secure. Look at verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We don't have to worry about God flaking out on us. He has a plan that he is unfolding to bring us to future glory. That was the plan from the beginning. He's known all along where things are headed. Now, there are some loaded words here in this verse, verse 30. So let's take them one at a time. The first loaded word is predestined. In other words, the plan all along was for us to look like Jesus. And now, there are a lot of Christians who hold to the doctrine of double predestination, Meaning that God chooses ahead of time who will go to heaven and who will go to hell with no choice on the part of the individual. Now, that's not what Paul is referring to here. And it's our belief that that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, we believe absolutely that God is sovereign, but that God's sovereignty and our free will responsibility work together in the salvation process. In other words, God predestines the boundaries, the plan, but not the man. 
It's like this. If my wife, Rebecca, invites you over for dinner at our house and says, we are going to have barbecued chicken, she's predestining the plan. However, you are still allowed to say no to that invitation. She's not making you come. She's just going to tell you what happens when you do come. And believe me, if it's her barbecue chicken, you don't want to miss out. (laughs) And that's what Paul's talking about here. This is not God picking and choosing who will come. This is God describing what will happen to those who do come. If you are justified, if you are believing and baptized under the name of Jesus Christ right now, then you are good. You're in. The goal here is not to come out of this text, though, with a pounding theological headache. We've got to remember, Paul's goal is for us to walk out of this with a renewed sense of assurance. So you've been predestined, you've been called. That's what happens when the gospel is proclaimed and we respond. And you've been, if you've been called, you've been justified, declared innocent, legally blameless, brought into the family of God. And if you've been justified, you will be glorified. Our glory is secure. Now, what does that mean? Well, back here in the beginning, God made the world and he called it good. God made people, he called them very good. But sin came and the world's not good anymore. We are not good anymore. And so ever since then, God's purpose is to restore that world and restore those people. That's glorification. The day when God will fix and make new all that sin has broken. Earlier in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. Catch this. For I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Someday we're going to break free from this cycle of sin and death, and we're going to put on our resurrected bodies, and we're going to rule over creation with Jesus like we were originally meant to. The image of God is going to be finally fully restored in us, and we will look like him. That's our glory. But it's not here yet, is it? And yet, Paul speaks of it in past tense, like it's already happened. Why is that? Because from God's perspective, it's as certain as anything else. Our glory is secure. It's as good as done. Even in the midst of creation's pain, God's saving plan will work. Our glory is secure. Just as sure as you've been justified, you will be glorified. So until then, you can rest in peace knowing that because of your faith, you're secure and you're headed to heaven. Now, this is what we call living in the tension of the now and the not yet. In verse 29, the now is our present reality, that we are right now redeemed and justified and adopted and called and reconciled to God. But even though our future is secure and sure, we're not yet glorified. We're not yet released from temptation and from suffering. I've asked uh, Mark to come up here and play a scale for us on the keys. He's on his way. (laughs) I should have given him a cue. (laughs) Oh, we're almost there. Can you feel it? Can you feel the tension? It's a little frustrating, isn't it? We're not quite there yet. And that's the tension that we're living in as Christians, knowing what's coming, but we're not there yet. And so we wait. We know right now that we are adopted and made new and that God is working everything for good. But we still struggle with sin. And we still live in this broken world. And so we're living in the overlap. The overlap of the mortal and the immortal. The finite and the infinite. The temporal and the eternal. The now and the not yet. 
And in the meantime, we wait and we groan, we ache, we want God to make this right. When we look around us and we see this broken world with race riots and sexual violence and fatherless families and natural disasters and economic disparity and all kinds of other fallen features. We live in the tension of knowing that the good is coming, but we're not there yet. We're still living in the broken. If I told you that you could live your perfect day, whatever you wanted, and that all you had to endure, do was endure one millisecond of discomfort at the beginning of that day, would you do it? Yeah, of course you would. And my perfect day would be something like this. I'd probably start out with a morning on the lake. Then for lunch, I'd have a good bacon cheeseburger and a milkshake. In the afternoon, I might go hiking in the mountains or something. Then for dinner, I'd have a big old juicy steak, medium well. And then here's something you got to know about me. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan because I'm a Christian. Um, (laughs) And so I'd end my perfect day by going with my wife to a Cardinals game and watching them whoop whoop up on the Cubs. It would just be a blast. That's my perfect day right there. And if you told me that I could have all of that and all I had to do was endure one millisecond of discomfort at the beginning of that day, yeah, count me in. Well, church, we are living in that millisecond right now. Glory is on its way. And when all is said and done, we're going to be fine. Philip Yancey is an author who writes a story of some American prisoners of war in a World War II prison camp. They're captives of the Germans. And these Americans had actually built a a, a makeshift radio there in the prison camp, unbeknownst to their Nazi captors. And one day, news came over that radio that the German high command had surrendered. The war was over. But actually, due to a communications breakdown, the German guards in the prison camp did not yet know this. It wasn't until four days later that the Americans woke up to find that the Germans had fled, leaving the gates unlocked. And in those three interim days, those American POWs still suffered. They were still mocked, still abused, but they were changed. They waved to the guards. They laughed at the German shepherd dogs. They told jokes over the meals. And in the midst of their captivity, they had joy. Why? Because they knew that their salvation was sure and soon. Freedom was on the way. And that's us, church. We're living in the tension of the now and the not yet, knowing that even though the world around us is broken and life still hurts, our glory is secure. So I want you to take home two things today. Something to know and something to say. First, something to know. Even in your groaning, God is working for your good. There's no character or circumstance or tragic event that enters your story that God cannot edit for his own good purposes. Even your sin and your past and your secrets and your failures, you are never too far gone. Bring your mess to God and he will make it something beautiful. God will keep his promise. Don't despair. Hold on to hope even when it's hard to see outside your pain. And I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your groaning is, but I know that each and every one of you has it. Maybe your pain is an estranged child a new school you don't know who to fit in with. Maybe it's being wronged and mistreated at work or that chronic illness that the doctors just can't figure out. Maybe your pain is those bills that keep piling up or the fear of the test results or the aching loneliness of an empty bed where your spouse used to lay or the craziness and exhaustion of little children. Maybe you're looking ahead and you're not knowing where you're going to work or who you're going to be with or what you're going to do. And I want you to remember that even in your groaning, God is working for your good. He's there with you, and God's sovereign guidance is the undercurrent and directing force that protects you from anxiety and despair. God's grace is working all things together for the good of those who love him. So that's something to know, and now something to say. Replace everything happens for a reason with everything can be redeemed. 
you will each have opportunities to speak the truth to people in their moments of pain and tell them the truth about God. And I believe that people have wonderful intentions when they say that everything happens for a reason. But I do believe that's a potentially dangerous saying. Because saying that everything happens for a reason implies that God is the cause of evil in the world, which we know to be untrue. God is good in all that he is and all that he does. So instead of saying everything happens for a reason, let's say that everything can be redeemed. Let's say that anything can be used for good, that God can take our mess and he can weave it into something beautiful, that this happened maybe not because God willed it, but God can use it for his will. He can take your mess and make it part of your message. He can take your test and make it part of your testimony. So replace everything happens for a reason with everything can be redeemed. Even in your groaning, God is working for your good. Our God is trustworthy. Our good is Christ-likeness. And even in the now and the not yet, our glory is secure. Dear Lord, we're living in the tension. And we're not there yet. And we don't always understand what you're up to. But we trust you and we love you because we know that you're good and you're powerful and you're for us. And we love being your children. In Jesus' name, amen.